Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. This podcast is brought to you in part by you, our friends and supporters at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators. Each podcast is a dialogue between me, Ba Lovemore, and an educator who sees the greatness in their students and touches the whole of their being. These educators defy generalizations, so here's a little bit about what they've done and how I know them. Today, we have the special treat of two guests on the podcast, Renee Owen and West Wilmore of the Rainbow Community School. Rainbow, founded in 1977, has been a model for holistic education for 41 years. Renee has been the executive director since 2007. She embodies all the principles of holistic school administration, vision, as exemplified by Rainbow's commitment to professional development, inquiry, as she facilitated renewed exploration into all aspects of whole child learning and community connections, and inclusive leadership initiated through the emergent and evolutionary approach of dynamic systems governance. West Wilmore is the Director of Operations for Rainbow Institute. I met West when she visited the school in Portland where I was headmaster, and her sparkling enthusiasm for holistic learning captivated me instantly. Perhaps that sparkle comes from her years as an environmental educator, or perhaps from her Teacher of the Year awards, or from the excitement of coordinating the contributions and outreach programs that Rainbow sponsors, or, and this is my best guess, from the joy of participating in the world of holistic learning. I wish we had two hours for this podcast as these remarkable women blaze new insights and opportunities for all holistic educators. But alas, we don't. However, there is a surprise for you in this podcast when the dialogue turns to Rainbow's upcoming conference. You can find out more about Renee and West by visiting the show notes at remarkableeducators.com and by joining us at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators, as they will be featured in an upcoming newsletter, one of the many rewards available for a small monthly contribution. Hi, welcome. <laughs> it's good to hear your voices. <laughs> and um, I, I wonder if we could just start by, uh, I'd love to know just personally what attracted you to holistic approaches in general and to rainbow and just in a personal sense, what drew you into, into the great work that you do? Oh gosh. I think we have two very different yet overlapping paths there. Do you want me to well, start, start wherever? Well, I, my path into education was real untraditional. This is Renee and I, um, did not get a degree in education. I was uh, a working artist and living in a really remote place in southwestern Colorado and ended up... What kind of art were you doing, Renee? Well, um, I was designing jewelry for my husband, who was who was a lapidary and a silversmith, and I was painting signs, and I was painting t-shirts, and I was making beaded jewelry that I sold in front of my friend's organic uh, natural foods restaurant in Moab, Utah in the summer. Sounds great. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like a really free and easy life. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, if you're going to live out in the middle of nowhere, you have to find some way to make a living. So, um, so it was a it was an unusual lifestyle, and the closest school um, would have been about an hour and a half each way bus ride to a little uranium mining town in Colorado, real real remote, real rural, and. My um, daughter, my oldest daughter, was going to be in first grade. And long story short, I ended up starting a charter school, a multi-age little tiny charter school, and um, which served the 19 students at first um, who that were in our little valley. Our little valley had 250 people, but it was about 30 miles from anywhere else. And that's how I got into education. Uh, so that was kind of unusual. And so since I did not have a degree in education, and that school was out in the middle of nowhere, and the district just kind of let us do whatever we want. I just did some pretty unique stuff with that school. I got drawn in right away to some work with Harvard um, and um, the Annenberg World Challenge on project-based learning and place-based learning. And so we were learning through projects. The, the school went preschool through eighth grade um, when, when we had all the grades built out. And I came from a heavy arts background, so we were doing a lot with the arts and so it was just a holistic school because I just kind of did what came naturally, honestly. And and then so the draw is the draw is really from just your natural self, just who you are, and get and having an opportunity to just express it, and that's just the way it comes through. Is that a good way to say it? That's a good way to describe it. Just doing what comes naturally, and yeah. and you know when you just have nineteen kids spanning at first, it was kindergarten through sixth grade. You it's you're kind of like a family, and so you especially do what comes naturally when you don't have you know a traditional classroom so much. And then. Um, I, um, when my daughter, my oldest daughter was going to be graduating out of that school, we went through eighth grade and she was going to be in ninth grade. I gave a year's notice and just started looking and found this incredible school that was called Rainbow Mountain Children's School at the time. And they were looking for an executive director. And I took one look at it and got that feeling that, that shivers feeling of that is where I belong. And well, well, how many students are at Rain- well, were at Rainbow when you first uh, came on as executive director? At the time, I think it was 110 approximately. We're, we're double that so, size. So you went from 19 students in the rural Utah to 110 students. That's right. Well, we were, we were up to about, you know, I think 35 or 40 students by the time I left Paradox Valley School because a lot of students started coming from nearby towns to go to our school. It was it became quite popular. <laughs> so they were being bussed in <laughs> from 30, 40 miles away to go to our little school. But yeah, I went from a very small school to a small school. <laughs> <laughs> and and how West came along um, is interesting because I had gotten some training at um, a place called Teton Science School. And I'd never hired a first-year teacher before, um, at least not at Rainbow. And um, and when I saw that she had Teton Science School experience, that's why I hired her. And I'll let her pick up that story there. Hey, bye. It's All West. right. I know, West, and great to hear your voice. I, um, I grew up uh, the child of a teacher, who was very well loved and respected in my small town community in Tennessee. And I grew up in a public school setting. So honestly, other than that setting, I've never really been involved in a traditional, to quote, um, 
setting and or a traditional educational setting. So I really disliked school growing up because I did not connect with teachers and um, did not connect with the way of learning in, in, a, in the traditional sense. It wasn't until I found um, wasn't until I found the geology and environmental science department in my undergrad that I realized that there are other ways of learning. And I discovered at that point that hands-on, place-based, experiential learning was the way that I learned best. And my professor, Dr. Potter, um, my geology professor at the time, he took us outside and I learned about um, the local geology the natural history through seeing, touching, and experiencing. And um, it was really that experience that I would say um, guided me down the path of loving learning. And as a result of that, every decision I made professionally around becoming an educator had a focus around the natural world first and learning through um, connecting with your place. And so after... Did you, did you, Wes, did you, like me, have to go through um, a period of, I don't, I just want to say cleansing, that's not really the word I'm looking for, purging, perhaps, of the earlier public school experience? Did it take any time for you to do that? Because it did for me. You know, there were the nuggets of... Um, there were the nuggets of joy and happiness from my public school experience. I think I made a lot of really deep uh, social friendships, but in terms of um, being recognized as a, as a learner and recognized as an individual, I don't think I received any of that. And so in a sense, yes, because I came into myself and um, was able to recognize how I learned and what drove me and what my passions were once I had connections with teachers who saw me. And that wasn't until my undergrad. Um, so I think once I formed those bonds and those connections, then I felt celebrated and I could reach my full potential. So yes, in a sense, I didn't get what I needed from my public school experience. Wow, that's beautiful. Where did you go to undergrad? A small liberal arts school in Tennessee called Sewanee, or the University of the South, and it's really known for its um, it's known for its amazing ten thousand acre uh, campus, and so that's wow. really where I found um, my spiritual path too was through connection with the natural world. Okay, so how did it hook up to Rainbow then? Yeah, so I, I left Suwannee um, with an environmental science and geology degree, and I ended up at the Teton Science School, which allowed me to extend my learning um, about the natural world. And I was able to, to uh, engage in some theory around education, specifically environmental education and place-based education. And that um, deepened my understanding of the natural world, but really intrigued me. Um, it really intrigued me about human development and educational theory. And so I continued to dive deep into environmental education. So all, also very much an alternative approach, 
But fortunately, the year of graduate work that I did at the science school transferred into Montana State University, and I was able to finish my master's degree out, and I ended up with a master's in education. So I started down an alternative path of environmental education and came out with a interdisciplinary or traditional um, master's in education. That, that's an unusual path. That's very, that's very interesting. And I moved back to the Southeast at that point. I had a lot of connections in Asheville because I had done some seasonal work doing uh, natural science summer camps and environmental science, um, environmental uh, education, seasonal work. And I moved back, did some of that work and discovered a position opening at Rainbow. And I actually experienced their May Day celebration and, you know, between that and their philosophy, I thought this could be a place I could work. And I applied for a second grade teaching position. And Renee and I realized that we had some deeper connections than just the science school connection. But actually, I lived in Moab, Utah on a commune <laughs> that she worked on <laughs> years before. And it's oh, an there you go. Yeah, that's it's a, a wonderful that's Not many people have ever been out there. So I would say, you know, under a thousand people have ever crossed the path out there. <laughs> it's a small world. It is. Well, let's, let's, that's, that's great. So uh, let's define, so West, what exactly do you do now at Rainbow? I know you're not teaching second grade anymore. No, I, I taught second grade and then third grade and then um, for many years and then moved into various administrative roles. I was a professional, the professional development coordinator for a while and um took a little bit of time off. And during that time off, I finished my administrative license through Appalachian State University. And now I am working as the curriculum coordinator. And I'm also raising money for our nonprofit. So I'm the annual campaign uh, coordinator or the development director. And I am also doing a little bit of uh, naturalist work with the students. That's quite a lot. And aren't you coordinating the uh, conference Yes. Aren't you the coordinator? Yes. So do you coordinate a lot of outreach programs like that? Well, we, a few years ago, we had the idea of sharing our model and um, we brainstormed many ways in which we could share our model. And one of the first things that came out of our brainstorm was let's host a conference. And so um, we started with a small piloted conference that we are calling the More Than Mindfulness Conference. And the focus is education as a sacred art. And that first year, we um, capped the ticket sales at 50 and we sold out with a waiting list. And last year, we doubled that and doubled the workshops. And now we're really pulling from the expertise in the community of Asheville, not just under the rainbow umbrella, but the mindfulness and contemplative education movement, as well as restorative practices and mindfulness, um, parenting through the mindful lens and other um, really social, emotional well-being practices that are found in Asheville. So we've expanded our workshops um, to draw, to pull from those experts. And then we also have some experts coming from um the state of Washington, 
and the state of Oregon. <laughs> and we have some folks coming from, Cal- uh, from South Carolina as well. So we're just trying mm-hmm. to pull through networks. Uh, oh, from Vermont. Um, and it's been really neat just to see the momentum behind the movement, especially in Asheville. And the hope is that um, we'll continue to pull from our local experts, but build into a national, be a national, um, the, a national conference for years to come. So at this point, we're hoping to triple, meaning we're hoping to sell about 150 tickets. And um, we're crossing our fingers that we can uh, reach out to multiple networks, not just our local network. Well, I know that I've put it out just once um, in in terms of like uh, in terms of here's the event and here's what's happening, and I had over a dozen responses, and I didn't put it out to my local mailing list or people I know yet. That was just kind of a general Facebook comment. So, and and I know many people who have, who know of Rainbow and know of the conference. So, I think the uh, the the reputation and just the whole intensity uh, of intentionality is has been great and just for full disclosure for our listeners <laughs> the keynote at this year's conference are the keynotes or the keynoters which would it be the key what the keynote noters i guess anyway are <laughs> josette and myself and we're really excited about it, and we're putting lots of effort into really trying to bring an experiential uh, opportunity uh, in the keynote format. So we're pretty excited about that, and we're very, very grateful to to you and to Rainbow and to just the whole history of Rainbow for keeping this alive. Yeah. So let's talk about Rainbow a little bit. Great. Um, so you have you you your approach centers on the, what you call the seven domains. You want to just run through that a little bit. Sure. Want either of you, please. Sure, both of us. Well, um, the seven domains are the physical domain, creative, the natural domain. So how we relate, connect with nature—that's an inherent part of who we are. The emotional and social domains, we now know that's, of course, deeply part of being human and learning. The um, mental domain, which is more where traditional academics fall, and the spiritual domain. And it's that spiritual domain that probably especially sets Rainbow Community School apart from, from a lot of schools that we have just named that for what it is. And, um, and honestly... I was just doing some work, Wes and I both were, um, um, over the last several days um, last week with Lisa Miller, who I hope we'll talk about here in a moment. She wrote a book called The Spiritual Child, and we were meeting with several schools about spirituality and education and its importance. And, And there was a question asked, which was, well, there's a lot of schools that are doing things that have to do with well-being and um and they're called social emotional learning or restorative practices or there's creativity there's working in with your your creative self there's work in the natural world what's what's becomes different when when spirituality is named and um everybody's answer was that's when everything really comes alive and so that spiritual domain is is really a key to the other domains in our mind but that's partly because of the way we were founded 
Do you want to add to that, Wes? Well, I'm I'm really excited to hear that because um, I know still I'm working with a group now out of Austin, Texas, Josette and I are, to try to develop an accreditation um, uh, organization for non-traditional schools. And even working with the term spirituality is still a kind of tender part of the approach and trying to talk about it and bringing it into focus. So when you say spirituality in education, how does that specifically translate into daily practice? So that's um, that's interesting because I, I think about how that translates into daily practice from the teacher's perspective and the work that they do, their personal transformation to show up positively every day for their students so that they can see their students and hear their students. Um, And that's very deeply personal, but very much encouraged as part of our, um, people would call them professional development plans, but ultimately we we encourage that highly um, and we give space and time for that teacher work. But in terms of what the students do every day or the learners do every day is um, really kind of a unique um, cultural experience. When you walk into the classroom each day, it doesn't matter if you're a preschooler or an eighth grader, we have um, 20 to 30 minutes of uninterrupted time in which we set aside at the beginning of each day that we call a centering time. And it's during that centering time that the community finds deep connection through ritual, through art, through music, through movement, through um, deep reflective questioning or journaling. It looks different depending on the needs of the group, but that centering practice is I would say one of our deeply spiritual approaches to um, engaging the inner life of the child. Great. Um, Renee, I I didn't want to kind of take away. You said you were going to mention something about uh, something you learned this weekend. You wanted to make sure that was included. Well, I just ended up mentioning Lisa Miller's name. Um, Lisa Miller, Dr. Miller is the head of clinical psychology at um, Columbia University Teachers College. And her um, life's work has been dedicated, at least for the last couple decades, to understanding um, spirituality within humans. And she's uncovered so much research of her own from her own lab and also done a lot of meta research, um, longitudinal studies, cross-sectional studies, all sorts of studies that she's put together. And, of course, all the technology we have these days to study the brains through MRI and um, neurology, the, it's just undeniable that spirituality is at the core of who we are as humans. It's located all throughout the brain. There are some specific areas that especially light up, but we are intensely and naturally spiritual people. As Lisa would say, it is our birthright. And so when we deny our spirituality or it's compartmentalized or it's only practiced in a certain in perhaps like a religious setting and that's kind of the only place that it comes out we are really denying our humanity and that's partly what makes rainbow community school so alive and the education here so alive in fact that's really what spirit means it means breath it means life that's the etymology of the word and so without breath you don't 
you don't have life. And that's why I said that the spiritual domain is the domain that really breathes life and brings everything else to life. And it just makes everything else go so much easier. And those, those seven domains, they're not, you know, it's for something to be truly holistic, whether you're talking about an educational practice such as ours, or whether you're talking about medicine or any other holistic practice, they work together. We don't just focus you know, on the creative domain and then another time a day only on the emotional domain and then another time a day only on the mental domain. They're ve- they work together very synergistically and they're layered together, um, ideally, you know, all throughout the day. There's certain times that we focus on one domain more than the other, like Wes described centering, you know, of this 20 to 30 minutes is set aside at the beginning of the day. But just because we're focusing on the spiritual domain at that time, that's, she mentioned several activities that could be done during that time that might be creative or natural or, or more in the mental domain. And so it's, it's that spirituality that helps that integration work together and come alive. It's really, everything's very webbed together. It's, it's not a linear style of education here. It's teaching story time. Briefly, teaching stories invite us to see the world with a new perspective, often featuring a wise person, a wise fool, or a trickster animal. They can be humorous and often have many shades of meaning shining throughout the story. I have told teaching stories for the past 40 years, and I love them. And I have to tell you, each time I tell one, I learn much more myself. Today's teaching story is entitled, How the Wise Man Created Truth. Laws as such do not make people better, said the wise fool to the king. They must practice certain things in order to become attuned to inner truth. This form of truth resembles apparent truth only slightly. The king decided that he could and would make people observe the truth. He could make them practice truthfulness. His city was entered by a bridge. On this, he built the gallows. The following day, when the gates were opened at dawn, the captain of the guard was stationed with a squad of troops to examine all who entered. An announcement was made. Everyone will be questioned. If he tells the truth, he'll be allowed to enter. If he lies, he will be hanged. The wise fool stepped forward. Where are you going? I am on my way, the wise fool said slowly, to be hanged. We don't believe you. Very well. If I have told the lie, hang me. But if we hang you for lying, we will have made what you said come true. That's right. Now you know what truth is. Your truth. Let's have some fun interpreting this teaching story. Become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators and you have access to our detailed comments on how this story applies to education and parenting. Of course, that's just our perspective. The fun comes with community dialogue as the many shades of the teaching story come alive. See you there. I've had a particular interest in the relationship or the, I don't know if the relationship's even the right word, um, the, um, the actuality of the, of the way relationship and spirituality 
mix. In fact, it's kind of hard to talk about them as separate for me. I mean, just as to the point you just made, it's all interconnected. But I was looking specifically at interpersonal relationship and kind of going back to people like Buber and Bateson and, and others, of course, and trying to understand how we organize or, op- or not organize, perhaps, but integrate or be in relationship such in such a way that the spiritual aspects of ourselves are nurtured. Do, do you, either of you have any comment on that sort of thing? Well, the, the thing that came to mind when you, when you mentioned that the importance of the interrelationship, I think, um, you know, we have our guiding principles and we have our mission statement, but I think at the heart of what we do are the, the deep connections, the four deep connections that are really emphasized um, in the relationships amongst the children, the relationships amongst the teachers, the re- relationships amongst the parents, um, the culture of our school. And those, those connections are first connection to self, connection to others, connection to the natural world, and connection to the spirit. And those are nurtured through everything we do. Um, and so I think when you as a school hold in high regard, connection, not just to the others around you or to yourself, but deeply to something that's greater than you, the natural world and the spirit, then that's really where um, I think a deeper meaning and understanding emerges. And I think one of the most important things that happens in centering is that it develops such a closeness and a harmony between the students and a teacher together. They breathe together, for instance, at least three breaths together, which creates this harmoniousness. They become like one organism. So after that hubbub of the day of everybody scattered and coming to school through traffic or walking or however they get here, coming in and having the lights low, being in a circle, having a visual focus, a candle's generally lit, an auditory focus, a bell is rung, and you can just feel everybody's energy um, come together and calm down, become cohesive, and then taking those three breaths together that even in preschool a child typically leads. And as soon as those three breaths are taken, everybody has breathed, like I said, it becomes like one organism and then whatever activity they do brings them together. But often those activities in terms of interpersonal relationships are something that has to do with with reflecting back one another's feelings. The students get into a place where they become free and able to be vulnerable with one another. They're able to share some of their deepest questions. They're able to share what's going on within their psyches with one another. And when somebody shares something like that, you can just feel the shift in the room. Everybody's paying attention and you can feel the compassion and the empathy and the tenderness. And those kind of moments, they don't just end when centering ends. They really permeate and inform the rest of the day. And of course, throughout the year, these classes become so close. And when you really understand one another's story, and especially like that at the beginning of the day, instead of rushing in the math, math is what we do right after centering, by the way, everybody's so focused after centering, it's a great time to do mathematics. And you, you've come together and you've shared story together. And that's what makes us human. And 
So we, so those, those interpersonal relationships, the, the I-thou relationship of we are a we, I am a we, really changes the classroom from, um, there's, from the opposite of competition. You know, any competition here at Rainbow is for fun and, you know, um, it's, there's not, and it's, and it's explicitly stated that we're competing. Um, it, there's not this underlying um, competition uh, because people are so used to cooperating and being together as one. Sometimes the uh, sometimes I've been around uh, children who share at that level, and the things they share are so intimate and perhaps so challenging that it can be a little bit extreme for other kids to participate in, uh, parents with cancer or a loved one dies, or or I've even had been around children who have spoken about uh, abuse in the home or things like that. Do you ever get those kind of edgy uh, comments, and then how would you deal with it? Mm-hmm. We do. And fortunately, our teachers, I think partly because of their own spiritual practices and their ability to be really present with the class, um, are very skilled at handling those. Um, Of course, we refer to, we're lucky to have a really wonderful counseling department and counselor, and we're able to refer to that. But in in terms of just those things within the moment, I just recently had our sixth grade teacher, for instance, tell a story about um, a student, she had a different centering plan, but a student had come in in the morning and said that um, his little um, infant um, brother um, had just passed and, um, you know, from a, or, and um, who had some serious medical issues and it wasn't a huge surprise. And he really wanted to do a centering um, for this baby. And um, she said, okay, it was something that he clearly needed. And, and she allowed that to be shared with the class. And it, she just was very good at, because of her mindfulness practice, being able to be, be fairly matter-of-fact about it and able to ask the student in front of the other students, so would you like us to treat this like any other day? Or um, how, you know... W- she had a much better way than I can think of right now of just saying, what do you need from us? And she kept it fairly simple, you know, with this, you know, death is part of life. She didn't say that she didn't philosophize, but um, she said she could feel the other students looking at her like, Oh, you know, what do we do now? And she just handled it with a lot of simplicity and empathy and, and, um, and, and compassion. And, and that way the students just, have that way they're able to share when they have a personal story that they need to tell. So they're not holding on to that sort of thing during the day when they really need it or wanted to share something. That just sounds, uh, it just touches my heart listening to you. And, and I thank you so much both for the story and for creating that opportunity for, for everyone involved. Um, how about parents? How do, how do you deal with parents? Do you have, um, the, you, it's not a usual approach. I know Asheville is a progressive community in many ways, but um, how do you get the parents involved in the rainbow community and in the education of their children? Well, when you asked earlier, you know, how does, how does spirituality or spiritual practice show up in this, in the school? And, one of the things that came to my mind um, that 
kind of launches our school year is, I think, an incredibly powerful opportunity for parents to share about about their child. We call this listening conferences, and it's not unlike a parent conference, except that parents know that they have this uninterrupted time to share about their child, um, their child's story. Maybe it's their birth story. Maybe it's um, the challenges that their, that their child is, has dealt with or is going through. Maybe it's the gifts that their child has. Maybe it's um, the hopes and the dreams that they have for the child. But to launch the school year with that deeply, that deep opportunity to connect, um, I think is one of the ways that parents feel seen and heard and I think builds that relationship between um, parents and teachers. And we, we call that listening. How many, who attends the listening conferences? The teacher, the assistant teacher, and the parents. The parents of that classroom. Uh, oh, each individual student's parents has an individual listening conference with the teacher. Oh, it's not other parents there. No, it's, that's, no, it's, it's no. Enough. Yeah, I understand. I just needed to clarify. So, are there all parent events as well as ways to bring them into the rainbow community, rainbow uh, learning underst- philosophy of, of learning? Yes, we um, we have song circle every Wednesday, in which our amazing music teacher sings with the kids, and that is open to parents. We celebrate seasonal um, cycles and celebrations. All of those. Celebrations are open to parents. Um, parents are involved in cla- classroom meetings that happen um, monthly. Parents are involved as volunteers, as I'm sure you know. Um, the campus is open. Um, it's also really important that parents recognize that they are always invited to our centering practices in each classroom, and the door is open um, for them to join. It helps them transition to their work day as well, while also connecting deeply to what's going on in their child's classroom. Do they do they take advantage of that? In some cases, yes. And then and then sometimes that'll be used to call together parents for a specific issue or topic, whether it's something that's going on in the world. Um, we had a class um, of of um, upper elementary school kids that had an issue um, in the in recent years where somebody had um, more than once drawn a swastika, actually, as, um, in a couple different places in the classroom. And the teacher was not able to identify exactly who was doing that. And so, you know, instead of it being, you know, a lecture and who did this and we're going to, you know, punish you or find out who you are, this is just, you know, so shameful. Um, she um, told all the parents about it and asked them to join um, for a centering um, that they, um, so many of them showed up for. Um, I think it was, you know, a couple mornings later, she was able to get a, a lot of parents to come. And she had some themes, you know, themes and um, laid out in the middle, um, words that were important. And then everybody got to share. And so many, um, you know, several of these parents shared um, stories of, you know, what the Holocaust was and why this, 
you know, what it meant for them, um, this type of the symbol. And they never had the problem again. That's great. And when you do have the conflicts, do you use uh, restorative justice practices? And do you specifically learn that, or is it just an arising of the natural way of being with children having difficulties? It's funny. I've heard that term, restorative practices and restorative justice, for a few years without actually looking into it until recently. And recently I learned a bit about it, and and, uh, it was just clear that that's just already what we do naturally. Mm -hmm. Sure. Absolutely. But I think it's worth noting that because our our teachers are um, encouraged to take the time to work through the social dynamics or work through a societal issue through the lens of how it's affecting the classroom or really kind of drop into um, being intuitive and what they what they can sense that their classroom needs that time that freedom really allows for opportunities like the restorative justice piece. Uh, I don't even think we realized we were doing it. It was just intuitive. It just, it, we were just feeding off the needs of, of um, the kids. And I think that the beauty of time and space and presence really um, is, is being able to, to identify those needs of the kids and to serve the needs of the kids. Well, when I hear about your teaching core, I mean, it's very exciting. Um, Do you have a lot of turnover? Do you have people who are there for a while? And how would you choose new teachers? Because it's really uh, amazing for these uh, for your teachers to have such a wide um, uh, such a wide range of abilities. Yeah, it's true. We we call on our teachers not only to do a lot, but to be a lot. And I once had somebody ask, what are you looking for in a teacher? And I said, well, they need to be really developed, highly developed in all seven domains. That's, that's a tall order. And so, you know, fortunately the school is a bit self-selecting. A lot of the people who are, are attracted to you know work here are some extraordinary people. And really, it takes about two or three years, I would say, to really drop into being fully a, a full veteran rainbow teacher who really understands the model deeply and is comfortable with her, um, her curriculum or his curriculum. Um, so they get a lot of support along the way. Unfortunately, we do not have a lot of turnover because that would not work since it takes so long to to, to really drop into the model. When most of our teachers... I. I need to figure it out, but I'd say our lead teachers have been here an average of about six or seven years on average. That That's great. I, I uh, taught in the graduate school at Portland State here, and um, one of the courses I offered was on burnout or or how to avoid burnout. And almost all of them wanted meaning and had lost meaning. These were uh, obviously mostly public school teachers and guidance counselors. And um, they just wanted meaning in relationship and they would have taken less pay and all sorts of things to have that. And without that, the other inducements started to lose their power. Yeah. And so not only providing meaning is just so, so important. It's it's so important. And that's, of course, one of the core aspects of, of honoring humans 
as as spiritual beings is is the meaning that's in our lives and behind what we do and and in addition to that our faculty have a lot of fellowship time with one another we center at the beginning of all of our faculty meetings for instance and often those are are quite long and that time it sounds so unusual in today's achievement culture, but that 20 to 30 minutes to day of the day for centering where the teacher can do just about whatever they want as long as they follow some very basic centering practices, and which is essentially just establishing a sacred space, that, um, that they, it doesn't have to be productive, so to speak, because the most productive thing for that time is to do what is needed and what is called upon and use that intuition and um, same with the faculty. There's those, there's open time that they get to be with one another and that we have to to work with one another in a way that just honors one another for who we are and builds ourselves, to builds that, enriches our well and our resource as humans. Well, uh, West, as uh, you, you, you mentioned that you are a um, curriculum I don't know if the word is director or you know facilitator. And are are you ever concerned that there's not enough time to get whatever you think the curriculum should be accomplished because of all the time spent in these other areas? I know that you don't see that as separate. I know you don't see it as separate, but having been an, an administrator of of a holistic school, I often heard. But are they up to grade level in math? Are they up to, you know, just all these academic achievement things? So do you get that and what do you do with it? And how do you reconcile that with the amount of time you need for all the other uh, that you offer? Yes, I mean, I'm left and right brained and I think about both of those things. And um, to, to be perfectly honest, it really comes down to experiencing so many of our graduates, teaching them, experiencing them at a very young age, maybe entering second grade and not being able to read, for example, or entering third grade and struggling um, in math, for example, and then seeing them achieve and as well as come into their own identity by the time that they graduate eighth grade, I don't have any concerns I hold space for parent concerns. I hold space for teacher support. I try to coordinate the curriculums in such a way that time can be saved. I try to um, really encourage overlap and integration as much as possible so that kids are exposed to the important outcomes and concepts. Um, But in the grand scheme of things, when we provide opportunity and space for the social, emotional, and spiritual development for children, by the time they reach eighth grade, we have learned that they are ready for anything. And our and the data that we have received from our um, from the high school is that our kids are overperforming, they're outperforming. Yeah, we were very lucky recently, the, the, the high school that over 50% of our students go to um, recently, with a little bit of sweet talking, we were, we talked them into sharing, you know, actually pulling out, we went through the list of names, our, our alumni director did this, gave them the list of names of our alumni that are there 
and they actually disaggre disaggregated the data um, and compared their GPAs, for instance, to the average GPA. Um, in fact, a lot of them are in an honors program, and, and they were specifically compared to the other students in that honors program, and they're um, on average, I can't remember their GPA was three point weighted three. I think it was three point seven something, and unweighted three point five something. And and I have to say, we don't. We're not a cream. You know, our admissions process is n is not to pick. You know, just the cream of the crop academic students by any means. It's we um, intentionally admit a lot of students that have very various differences. Um, Various demographics. We give out a lot of a lot of scholarships. So um, families who come from um, a legacy of poverty. We have um, a lot of students who have dyslexia or various learning differences. And um, I've just been so amazed at the students who you know I've done a little bit of personal work with, helped them with a writing assignment, for instance, and and knowing that you know they were students that were. Um, uh, you know, not in not what would be in a gifted and talented program, I'll just say, you know, at a public school and then have them go to the high school and be on the honors list and, and getting all A's. It's just, it's happened so many times. I've just been floored by how well these kids are able to produce once they follow the program all the way through eighth grade. A lot happens developmentally when they when they reach seventh and eighth grade, are really that's the culmination of development. The way our model works, um, well, we only go through eighth grade. Or more would happen after that, yeah. but that's a really important time. Of course, sort of when it all comes yeah, together. Yeah, wow. But wow. I just want to. Sure, add, go ahead, please. Um, just, just considering the the time and energy that we put on um, the social, emotional, and spiritual development when these students leave Rainbow, what we've heard from their teachers is that, number one, they ask the questions. Mm -hmm. They are curious one. They are curious learners. They wonder. They ask the big questions. Number two, they advocate for themselves. Number three, they're resilient and they persevere. And so I think those three gifts, if you can leave your eighth grade year with those three gifts, then I only see success for you. Mm -hmm. It's just it's so it's it's so great as a as a warrior in this field. It's just just so great to to listen to to all of this. Do you have many students who are with you all the way through eighth grade? Do the some draw, come in say at fourth or fifth grade? Do you have admissions like that? We do, and every and um. It, it is it varies depending on the what's going on in terms of the climate of the economy um, we have a lot of really great public schools in Asheville and a lot of charter schools so if if parents can get on a waiting list or get into a charter school sometimes we lose kids that way um, you know it's just a lot of varied um, reasons why we either gain or lose students we have a I think a fairly typical matriculation and attrition rate for a private school, which is about about ten percent a year, which doesn't sound like much, but over the course of if, if they start at three years old where a preschool starts through eighth grade in a class of twenty kids, that's two kids a year changing. So by but still by the time eighth grade in a graduating class of twenty kids, there's usually um, oh, I don't know. 
about eight that have been there since at least like first grade. And, and that's, a, that's a, it's especially a special bond that those kids have. It's really neat when they've been there for a really long time. As, as, a, a, as a man who's, as you know, run holistic schools and spoken to many who do, one of the big challenges that's often faced is the financial challenge. Um, do you depend strictly on tuition? Do you have, what are your, if you're willing to share, what are your income streams? It's almost strictly tuition. We have an annual campaign. West shared that she's development director as well as her many right. other things that she does. And, and uh, that annual campaign is primarily parents, grandparents, and she's been very successful also in attaining business sponsors. And part of the reason she's able to do that is because we are really a community entity. We serve the whole community um, we, beyond our students with Rainbow Institute, which is the part of our adult education arm that the conference that we give. And we give a lot of advice to other schools in town and share uh, best practices um, the scholarships that we give and so many students that are able to come here. Um, but also we just host a whole bunch of things on campus for advocacy groups, activists, um, education, Parent workshops, yeah, all sorts of things. Oh, I, yeah, that's, that's great. That's very, I can see where that would really bring a lot of people in. Well, we've been at it. We've been at it a while, and I want to make sure that I. Is there anything that I you wish I you wished that I had asked, or that you want to just say um, that I've left out in our conversation today? I'll just drop into for just a second about the importance of um, the natural domain and how we hold that in the development of that in high regard. Um, we are a very lucky school in that we are, even though we're in the heart of West Asheville, we have five acres of green space and that's intentional. Um, additionally, our campus is, even though the, the, the office that we're sitting in now is um, part of a historic home that's on the historic registry, the rest of our campus that has been built um, in more recent years it mimics organic shapes and the natural world as much as possible. Um, green space is really, it really important, and we invest a lot of time and energy into cultivating um, beautiful organic spaces. And um, stewardship and environmental sustainability is something on the forefront of our minds always. We've just put... Um, a huge solar array on our community building. And that's one of the many practices that are environmentally friendly, but at the heart of the natural domain is a deep connection to the natural world. And so you would, um, if you observed any classroom, you would recognize that teachers hold a lot of space for um, number one, diving into the natural sciences and engaging in questioning and inquiry around the natural science sciences. But number two, um, making time and space for kids to connect deeply with nature. Um, everything from um, preschool spending a large chunk of their day outside, regardless of the elements, to eighth grade developing a um, relationship with a tree and learning, um, learning about that tree through the seasons, through a phenology project. So... You know, I, I just want to emphasize that that's one of the connections that you would find in the heart of Rainbow. And I think uh, given the state of the environment, 
when our kids leave this campus, if they can have a, a deep understanding of the natural world through the scientific lens, but more importantly, a deep connection so that they um, want to protect it and conserve it. Yes, it sounds it sounds like that you understand that there's a, the natural place is one of connection, of course, to our great earth, and that it it's really a perversion or a corruption of that natural energy to see it any other way. And so it sounds like you just nurture that um, just in every single way. In fact, every every aspect, if you will, that we talk about just shows how interconnected all the aspects are. And there's a deep spiritual comment, of course, in what you just said, West, as well. Meetings with Remarkable Educators is brought to you in part by our friends and supporters on Patreon. If you enjoy our podcast and want access to enriching gifts for parents and educators, please visit patreon.com slash remarkableeducators and consider becoming a patron. Your support means the world to us and will allow us to continue this essential project. Our sound engineer is Dimitri Young. Our webmaster is Nathan Young. And our all-important social media maven is Cleo Young. All podcasts are transcribed with show notes and can be found at remarkable-educators.com. This is Ba Lovemore reminding you that holistic relationships with children leads to joy and self-knowledge with the adults in their lives. With respect for you and for children everywhere, see you next time.